Welcome to Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. Stories We Don't Tell is a monthly event in Toronto that features candid stories of strength and resilience. I threw out my prayers, they went flying like balloons. The air whipped our hair, we went shooting down the valley. Knuckles gripped upon the handles, shivers rushing down my spine. You're just tuning in, Paul and I are yeah. analyzing cable television and we're about to change tax. Yeah, that was great. You were going to open with a joke, I think, weren't oh, you? Oh, yeah, I've got lots of jokes. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> you just can't think of any of them right now? Um, well, my roommate told you guys that I told a really funny joke recently, but that was a lie. But so it, it, that what was do you my mean, only though? joke of the year so far. Well, I was talking about how I asked for hair cutting advice on Reddit, which is kind of a joke, I guess, in its very existence. Uh-huh. And then what, the, that you were asking that on Reddit? Yeah, I wasn't joking, but like other people would think oh. that that was a joke mm-hmm. or that my very existence is a joke. Um, so I was asking for hair cutting advice on Reddit and all the answers were like, don't cut your own hair. So it was all very helpful information. Yeah, so it wasn't helpful at all. And then I was telling my roommate about this. And I was like, I don't think that I live in the same world as these people because I don't even use shampoo. And then she started laughing like that was a joke. And then she told you guys that I told a funny joke. But I didn't because I'm, they don't really tell jokes. I can and he- I also don't use shampoo. Uh, well, I can hear all of the listeners laughing. I know. I know. That's it's, why I wanted to repeat it. It's great. So why did we start with uh, you telling a joke on this episode? <laughs> because today, today on the Stories We Don't Tell podcast, in addition to learning about my hair regime, we are also going to, and cable television, we are also going to talk about what I have non- adversarially described as humor versus storytelling. Ah, yes. And how it fits in and what is the difference? I like to maybe start with like, you know, when there's anecdotes, right? There's also the difference in that where somebody might have a funny story or they, a story they tell that is, you know, to their friends or something, but then it's a different thing to actually then try and craft an anecdote into like an actual story that you stand up and tell people. That you tell people without getting their feedback, which is kind of the difference about performing something versus telling your friends. Mm -hmm. Because when you're telling your friends, even if it's a rehearsed story, like there are moments where you pause for them to kind of react or ask follow-up questions or whatever, and you, I mean, you still pause for people to react Mm -hmm. in stories and presumably comedy. That's obviously not my wheelhouse. But but you don't, they don't prompt you at all. Mm Mm-hmm. So how do you think, uh, I'm curious about what, in terms of like our events, so stories we don't tell, mm-hmm. where, where does, for your, just your opinion, mm-hmm. where does humor fit into the event in general? Okay, well, in my opinion, so I would be totally happy to go to event, an event in which there was absolutely no humor, like a completely humorless event in which storyteller after storyteller just ripped off their skin and like showed you, that's really loud. So storyteller after storyteller just ripped off their skin and like showed you their most vulnerable places in story form. Mm-hmm. And then you sobbed and then you didn't talk to anybody and you left. So that's an event that I personally would love. But um, there's a kind of a limited audience for an event like that. <laughs> and so, so first and foremost, for me, the role that humor plays is creating a more well-rounded event. 
Mm-hmm. So making sure that you can kind of lighten the mood and protect the audience as I always describe it and just give people a little bit more comfort and get them back into their bodies a little instead of wherever they've been during the devastating stories. Mm-hmm. So they can come back and they can lighten up and they can let their tears dry. And then when it's time to interact with other members of the audience again, they're like, haha, we just heard a funny story. So it's not weird to talk to each other. Yeah. What, what do you think, Paul? To me, it just helps break things up. And like you're saying, you know, you you have people that are telling very serious stories. You need to give the audience a break in a way. And uh, I mean, for me, just personally, in my stories, it it kind of just helps if I'm, you know, maybe do want to talk about something a little bit serious. Also, it, it helps me to throw in a bit of humor to try and get deeper at the issue. How do you find the tension between vulnerability, which is what I think makes a good story, and humor, which not humor, not that humor can't be vulnerable. I think that, I mean, I think that stand-up comedy is a very vulnerable act, mm-hmm. but I think that the way that a lot of people tell jokes and the way that especially we see a lot of people telling jokes at um, storytelling events or like amateur comedy nights is that it's a deflection of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So I think that like there are some really skilled comedians who use it as a way to kind of dig in and be more vulnerable. And I think that there are a lot of unskilled comedians who use it to deflect. Mm-hmm. And because when we're looking at storytelling in the way that we do it, I'm saying we as ourselves, but we as our event as well, it's like a lot of people who haven't honed this art of vulnerable humor so how do you find those two how do you find that they interact when you're writing and when you're performing do you know what i mean yeah i do i it's um i actually find almost the because i i I do with our events that we have um we tell a lot of stories and so to me it's always a good opportunity to try different things and although it is i do feel risky or it is risky to tell a story that is very serious and you're vulnerable almost by some of the humor because you can kind of know what people's reactions are with the serious story or what you hope it's going to be Mm -hmm. where with the humor it's kind of hard you don't know if it's going to get a laugh or if it's funny and I feel sometimes that that is it's riskier almost or it's risky in a different way Mm -hmm. Because sometimes I'm just like, I don't know if this is going to land. And part of the other problem is that this is part of the process for me anyways that I found early on is that we do all of these workshops so everybody knows the jokes so nobody laughs anymore. And you wonder if this is funny. So I just leave all of that out and then hope it's funny. By the time it gets to the event. Yeah, everyone's done laughing. <laughs> yeah. Like, will these new people appreciate this or yeah. did it just wear off? Yeah. That's interesting because I, I hear what you're saying that, like, if you make a joke and it's obvious it's a joke and it falls flat, then that feels, that could feel worse mm-hmm. than just exposing something mm-hmm. kind of about yourself. But what's interesting about that is I think that with humor, you get something, you get really immediate feedback from the audience. Yeah. So when it goes well, um, you have a really obvious way to know if the audience is still with you. So if they're in the story with you and they're listening and they're whatever because they're laughing. But when you're telling a story with no humor, you can't tell. Mm-hmm. I mean, you. I, I believe that you can feel it when the audience is with you, but you don't get any kind of immediate feedback in the same way as you do with humor. 
And I actually, this is something that I think that we see a lot with uh, when comedians switch to storytelling, which they do at events across the city for a variety of reasons. So when comedians pick up stories and are telling more vulnerable stories that are intentionally less joke-filled, you can tell when someone gets a little bit uncertain or derailed or vulnerable because they'll throw in some jokes Mm -hmm. and it's like the easiest way to tell if the audience is still with you Mm -hmm. because up until that point you might not be getting the feedback that you're used to or the feedback that you can most obviously take note of Mm -hmm. yeah and it's uh i i don't know i guess i find with the audience when if you bring up the audience with the uh, with the humor side i i feel when i'm much more attuned to what's going on and because you have to, if you say something, you just have to wait sometimes because like you are getting that people are laughing. So you can't just plow through your story. You have to like wait and you have to actually like listen to what's going on. At another, at another event here in Toronto, True Stories Told Live, one of the rules for that is that you have to leave the mic in the mic stand. And uh, the reason for that, that I was told when I asked about that, when I had done that event was that, well, if some people take the mic out and then all of a sudden if they get a laugh or something, they f- turn into like a stand, they think they're turning into a stand-up comedian, <laughs> but it's, it's a lot of skill to be a stand-up comedian and to, to be able to do that. We've, you've seen people get derailed because of that because then they start to try and lean into getting laughs and mm-hmm. it kind of derails their story a little bit. Yeah, so what do you think is the difference between a comedy set and a story. Because they, they are different. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know when you're listening, I mean, in addition to the humor, but there are humorous stories and then there are comedy sets. I don't know. That's a tough question because it's like one of those things that you know what it is. Like you know when you're listening to a comedy set and when you're listening to a story. I, I guess just the, the one thing is that the story is generally about one thing. Mm-hmm. where it's, um, you know, there could be jokes in there or built in to the narrative, but it is about, it's a through-line story where, you know, when you have a stand-up set, a lot of times <clears throat> it's it's sort of bits and it's jokes and it's things like that. I mean, that's one aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that there's something to the fact that in a lot of stand-up, even though that one person might be, putting themselves in a really vulnerable position or telling you something vulnerable about themselves. Like a lot of stand-up kind of hinges on that. People mm-hmm. talking about breakups and people talking about their own insecurity. I mean, a lot, a lot of comedy is people talking about their insecurities. Sure. Um, but I'm going to generalize here in a way that's probably totally unfair. Like one of the things that I think a lot of comedians do is that the humor is in the difference between the picture that they're painting of themselves and how the audience might want to relate okay that was poorly expressed but like when they're talking about how insecure they feel you don't feel insecure with them Mm -hmm. exactly um so i think that one of the things about a story is that it's usually crafted like the point of sharing it is to uh take the audience through what it feels to have that experience Mm mm-hmm and I think that that can be true with comedy for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think that generally that's not a goal of comedy. 
uh, a goal of comedy is to like, in some ways, turn yourself into a clown who mm-hmm. the audience is inherently not going to empathize with. Like, that's not the point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm it's... also not funny, so I could be wrong. <laughs> no, it's tricky because there, there are lots of comedians that I like that are like storytelling comedians. Like sure. that's what they do long form yeah. stories and they build in the, like the jokes. Birbiglia. Yeah. And, and, and uh, the jokes. for sure. And I don't know, that's, uh, I find it really, and again, when I've act- actively tried to be a little bit, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't want to, I just want to tell a lighter story of kind of trying to find the, not just making up jokes or anything like that, but trying to find the humor, the humor comes from the story. Mm-hmm. So trying to find the humor in different bits of the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my, I will ask question uh-huh. or question pieces. So do we have any not hard or fast rules about when comedy or humor tends to work versus when humor doesn't tend to work? So to position hmm. this question, yeah. we're going we're gonna to hear after this enlightening conversation, we're going to hear a story from our good friend John about um, an experience that he had. I feel like this is the beginning, so I can just uh, share an experience that he had on ayahuasca, mm-hmm. I believe. And when he was writing it, he was like, oh my God, how cliche is this? Like I'm writing a story about a drug experience and I can't, I can't be that person who stands up in front of a bunch of people while sober to sober people to talk about what it was like to be on drugs. Like we all know what that sounds like and it's the worst. Yeah. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about your drug epiphany. Like that's a good rule actually. Yeah. Um, And so one of, one of his goals with this story was to kind of, highlight just the absurdity of the entire situation and how difficult it is to talk about it mm-hmm. for that reason mm-hmm. that like it it can be really boring to take it seriously mm-hmm. so if you don't take it seriously how do you still how do you kind of tread through that mm-hmm. so so that's what the story that we're gonna hear spoiler yeah. alert wow. um so i think that it's an interesting way to yeah take on something that people tend to take really seriously and you don't want to mm-hmm. um and i think that that is one way that people use humor. I think that one way that it can be dangerous to use humor is to just alleviate your own discomfort. So if you're telling a story, well, this is a hard line. So if you're telling a story about something that was painful for you or difficult for you, and then you get worried that you're being too vulnerable and you deflect with a joke, I think mm-hmm. that that's like lazy humor. Mm-hmm. So I would challenge people who are inclined to do that to not include any jokes and then see how that goes. Are you Nick? (laughs) If there's one question you don't want to hear after experiencing a profound and destabilizing destruction of your ego and self several hours after ingesting a Peruvian hallucinogen, (laughs) it's this one. (laughs) But the person I feel really sorry for is Mike. Mike is a middle-aged man who has recently gone through a divorce and is lying on the mat on the ground next to me. In fact, a facilitator has repeatedly come over to our area several times now, grabbed my foot and asked me whether I'm Nick. The thing is, I don't know whether I'm Nick, and I've been letting Mike take the heat for me. (laughs) 
because I'm fairly sure that the person asking the question can't actually remember whether I'm Nick or not either, and has been repeatedly bothering Mike and asking him whether he's me. <laughs> of course, the fact that Nick and Mike sound so alike just works out all the better for me. I can't think of anything worse than lying on a mat in the dark, hallucinating and vomiting into a bucket, while someone you barely know tugs on you and calls you the wrong name. <laughs> I feel badly for Mike, but I can't help him, <laughs> because I don't know who I am. Look, now, there's nothing the world needs less than another person describing their ayahuasca trip like a stranger at a party describing a dream to you <laughs> that, that they not only believe has immense significance for themselves, but also for humanity as a whole. <laughs> so here's my sentence-long Yelp review. The cosmic joke's on me. I don't exist. Three stars. Long form, I communed with an impossibly complex life form that eradicated my sense of self entirely. I wonder why no one else ends up thinking this thing is as funny as I do. A room full of strangers sweating, convulsing, vomiting, crying and wailing after voluntarily taking a plant that they knew would do this and paying for the privilege is just inherently funny to me. We're also doing it in the back room of a house off a highway that doubles as an inflatable sign shop. <laughs> you were supposed to go into this experience with an intention, and I'm kind of wound up that one woman really just wants to make sure that she should be feeling as good as she does currently about the things that she's already doing. I find it even more frustrating that the plant confirmed this for her. <laughs> If I knew that I could just try and gear the experience around smug personal self-satisfaction, that I wouldn't have spent so much time thinking about ego death. I mean, that's mean. But weren't we supposed to have more noble intentions? I've been here before. I, t I once took in a decent amount of Mexican mushrooms with my friend Liam, and I couldn't make coherent sense of existence anymore. The worst part was that Liam proceeded to put on a DVD of videos by the goth-leaning balladeer Nick Cave. And the video that terrified me the most involved the singer singing his version of an old murder ballad while dancing menacingly in a pink crop top in front of an ominously green backdrop. I mean, I can safely say that that experience was less significant than this one, but why? What makes one context any more authentic than the other? I was kind of put off by the list of dietary restrictions that ceremony participants were encouraged to engage in. No sex, no alcohol, no weed. It seemed like a strangely puritanical position for a plant to be taking. <laughs> and I've always had an issue with authority. Should I be taking orders from vegetation? I don't know. Most people on this stuff vomited or cried or screamed, but I didn't. I got off easily. I yawned. But when mostly everyone's vomits and you yawn, 
The sense of non-vomiting relief is replaced by a fundamental insecurity about whether or not you've done the drug correctly. <laughs> Although I wonder whether had I vomited, I would have secretly been so inclined to secretly compare vomit buckets <laughs> to make sure that my vomit looked right. What does the right vomit look like? It's hard not to notice that vomit comparison is an ego-driven activity. <laughs> Once the effects had worn off, I passed out for an hour on my mat. I was woken up by my ride. A man who had just been through the same experience as I had, yet seemed remarkably perky. <laughs> he insisted that he was okay to drive. An assessment that I accepted and in fact turned out to be accurate, although retrospectively should have seemed, if not highly suspect, then at the very least implausible. <laughs> and it's easy to judge, but I put it to you. What kind of evidence can you accept as legitimate when the very rationality that perhaps separates you from other animals has been fundamentally called into question? After coming home, I thought about emailing the shaman. <laughs> it's hard, I will admit, to get through that sentence. <laughs> but again, the question is, who do you email on the occasion of this particular circumstance? There aren't a lot of outlets for ego destruction that don't include medical intervention. A route that I'm sorely distrustful of, given how few medical professionals can honestly say that they've experienced the absolute disillusion of their ego. <laughs> On the flip side, I worry that once you start to get shamans involved, that inevitably the number of explanatory entities gets multiplied in a way that William of Ockham, I think, rightly taught us to be immensely distrustful of. And honestly, I already have enough going on in my life without adding new layers of spiritual bureaucracy to it. <laughs> and really, how can I be accountable to a higher power when I don't exist? <laughs> you know, what I want, I think, is what a lot of children of a-religious and atheistic families want. A low-maintenance, low-rent religion with as little commitment as possible and very little mythology. Sometimes I'm worried that's all I'll get, though. I want connection, community, love. I want to belong to something infinitely greater than myself. I want to expand outwards in the way that spiritual guru Ram Das, formerly Richard Alpert, told me I should in a Facebook post. <laughs> I want to vomit. <laughs> but not just vomit. I want to vomit in the way you're supposed to vomit. <laughs> Just for once, I want to vomit properly. Subsequently, I learned from a friend some details about Mike's experience that I think are important. Because Mike didn't hallucinate that night. In fact, Mike had forsworn the recommended diet and eaten hamburgers and milkshakes and things like that during the preceding nights. And I think there's something really important about po and poignant about that, about a man 
lying on a mat in the dark, his belly full of digesting hamburger meat, waiting for a hallucinogen to hopefully help him deal with something significant in his life, while people around him vomit and cry, and someone he barely knows tugs on him and calls him the wrong name. I think that's a metaphor. But I don't know what it means. You can find us online at thereapers.org because we're in the life collecting business. You can like us at facebook.com slash stories we don't tell podcast. If you want to help us out, you can rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks to Rayana for the theme music to this podcast. You can find out more about her in the show notes or at rayana.ca. This episode of the Stories We Don't Tell podcast is brought to you by Ayahuasca. Sponsorship does not imply endorsement.